Let Them Lead is a podcast about the risks and rewards of leading today. Your host is John Bacon, author of the book, Let Them Lead, Unexpected Lessons in Leadership from America's Worst High School Hockey Team, which led to this podcast. On Let Them Lead, John talks to remarkable leaders from every field imaginable. Automotive, computers, food service, media, education, and athletics, just to name a few. And they share their hard-won wisdom, amazing stories, and a few laughs. You'll also learn a few things you can use tomorrow, and things you can think about the rest of your life. John always finishes with three takeaways and a discussion of their favorite teacher. In the words of John's fifth grade teacher, Mr. Puddock, it's fast, it's fun, and we get it done. So please join us for an entertaining and inspiring discussion. You'll be glad you did. You can subscribe to the podcast through Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. Please feel free to leave your comments about any and all of the podcast episodes. And by all means, spread the word. That's how the word gets spread. And now here's our latest episode of Let Them Lead, presented by your host, John U. Bacon. Welcome back. This is Let Them Lead, a podcast about the risks and rewards of leading today. I'm John U. Bacon, the author of Let Them Lead, Unexpected Lessons in Leadership from America's Worst High School Hockey Team. And as you know, I'm not making that up. Today's guest is none other than John Wangler, number five to you Michigan football fans, legendary quarterback, great guy, great businessman, it turns out, and also a great father, including two sons who played for Michigan. So we'll get right into this, John. You grew up in Royal Oak. You went to Royal Oak Shrine, a legendary school itself, especially in basketball, I believe, more than football. And you played basketball and football. Tell us the truth. Which sport did you like better? Well, we, we have a good football tradition, too. Uh, and, and there was a point in time where we had four professional football players came from Shrine. Jim Seymour, Paul Seymour, um, Mike Haggerty, and uh, Billy Simpson. So uh, Shrine had a great tradition in football and, and basketball. Don Seco was our coach. We had some, some really good teams. And I tell you, I loved every sport. I, depending on the season, you know, uh, football was a lot harder to practice. And But, you know, you cannot beat the games. Uh, basketball was more fun to practice and you could do it in your backyard all year round. But I, I really, I love them both, honestly. And, uh, you know, it's hard to choose. I, I loved every sport. I, I ran track and played baseball in the spring. And back then you could do that. You didn't have to specialize like it is now. Sometimes the kids, you know, focus on one sport early in life. But back in, growing up in the 60s and 70s, you really could play all sports. And it just depended on the season. Did your sons also play? Jack and Jared, who played football at Michigan, did they play other sports as well? They did. They played. Uh, they played soccer early. They played uh, uh, basketball all the way through, and then um, you know they they uh, they're on me about kind of stifling their their baseball career. Jack played one year, but uh, but yeah, they they both played those sports all all through and had a great time. And uh, whatever the season was, they were out doing something. Well, there you go. I can tell Jack there's plenty of beer league softball to be had, so yeah. his career's not done. <laughs> That's right. Allie played basketball at Michigan. Uh, she's right. a college basketball player, and CeCe played at Mercy. And then uh, Eric played uh, football at Trine in grade school, and he was an actor. And then Jaleesa played tennis. So we had him doing something. Hey. Yeah. Well, I've met Hallie, of course, and she's a good athlete, no question about that. So. Nice work there. You had a lot of options out of high school. Michigan State, one of them. Daryl Rogers, later on, of course, the Detroit Lions coach, had done a good job bringing them well, back. Well, no, 
it, it, before it was um, Denny Stoltz. Denny yeah. Stoltz, when you were Denny a Stoltz. senior, I guess. Yes. Yeah. Okay. You, you recruited me. Yeah. Charlie Baggett was graduating, and I was going to be in the next class, but that was the class that got on probation uh, in 1976. Uh, and they lost a bunch of scholarships and couldn't go to bowl games. That was Kirk Gibson and Eddie Smith's class. So uh, that's right. Yeah. So I, uh, yeah, they recruited me pretty heavily. So how'd you pick Michigan when they've already got Rick Leach, who's finished his freshman year, started every game. Back then, no one jumps, of course. You're probably looking at, you know, backing up Rick Leach. Perhaps you're lucky for three more years. How'd you pick Michigan out of that pile? Well, uh, I can give you the long or short answer that, you know, uh, there's a guy we all know and love, Bo Schembechler, who's very difficult to, to turn down. Um, I wanted to stay close to home uh, where my parents and friends could see me. Uh, I actually played JV basketball two years at Michigan. They had a JV team back then. So I want, you know, I, I figured if it didn't work out in, in football, I could probably go to play basketball. And, um, but Bill McCartney recruited me, and he, like Bo, uh, if you had to send two guys into any home in the country, any time, in any decade, in any era, uh, if you're betting on Bill McCartney and, and Bo Schembechler, those two guys, uh, you know, they made it hard to say no. Obviously, the academics at Michigan, uh, my mom and dad were both teachers. It was very important to them uh, and the tradition and history and to play at the highest level. You know, I, I knew and I wasn't really an option quarterback. I could run and scramble pretty well before I hurt my knee, but uh, I wasn't an option quarterback in high school. And they said, hey, if you're good enough, then, you know, we'll maybe we'll adjust the offense a little bit to your talent. So I believed them and, uh, you know, it took a, <laughs> it took a little while, but uh you know, playing behind an All-American like Rick, you know, I learned a lot. I was fortunate. We played on great teams. And uh, I'm glad, you know, and it probably wouldn't happen today, right, John, with these quarterbacks, if they don't play or they don't see a quick path to getting on the field, they, they transfer, you know. But uh, I, it was hard, but I think it taught me a lot of lessons and to be able to play uh, and, and learn from, from Rick and, 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 and be in our system, you know, for three years before I really got to play. I think it helped me out when I got my chance. I get, a lot of guys will tell you that. I've even talked to the guys before you, the Deardorfs, the Lytles, I'm sorry, the McKenzies, and so on, uh, the one year of academic ineligibility. Most of those guys said that was a good thing because you got a year to get your act together before the pressure got to be too great. So uh, we always lose something in the process, but here we are, of course. So your parents, by the way, are both teachers. I got to know them both. Remarkable people. Uh, immediately likable. They're energetic. They remember your name. Um, your mom, especially, was a pistol. Uh, she knew what she thought. I know that. And if she liked you, she liked you. And she didn't, I'm glad I didn't find out because uh, yeah. <laughs> to be avoided. Yeah. What did you learn from your parents? I think, uh, well, I guess, you know, they're, they're your first teachers, right? And I think you learn everything. And you as a, a uh, not you're so young, now you're, you're, your son's, what, eight, you said, I think? Is he? he is. But, I'm not young, but he is. But, <laughs> But I think uh, it's amazing what they hear and what they see and how they emulate their parents, right? I think from my parents, I learned at an early age uh, a work ethic. My dad was one of 10, grew up on a farm in West Branch, Michigan. Uh, you know, no running water, was born in 27, went through the Depression. Uh, and he, you know, slept forward to a bed, no running water. I mean, he had the whole thing going on. And, and so uh, him... Uh, and my mom grew up 
in outside of Youngstown, Ohio, in, in Farrell, PA, in a uh, steel town. And uh, they both, my whole life, uh, worked two jobs. They were both college professors in the end. But growing up, they were junior high teachers. And my mom was a nurse. And she worked from 7 to 7 and was home to get breakfast and have us when we got home from lunch. And he slept during the day. And my dad would, would paint houses during the summer, fix houses up, and do odd jobs as well as as he was going to school to get his master's and his doctorate. So I think I was, uh, at an early age, I was exposed to people with great work ethics. And I think growing up through the Depression and, and you know all World War II and that generation, uh, they saved everything. They were very frugal, right? It was just a different era. And I, I saw that and I learned that. Um, and then I think the other thing uh, to highlight too would be the, how to treat people. And I think uh, my mom would always say, hey, you treat people the way you'd want to be treated and you won't have any problems, you know. And, and really, that's all um, it's all about, right? You know, just respect others, um, you know, and, and I don't really have any problems. I treat people, you know, the way I'd want to be treated. And, you know, uh, as crazy as this world's gotten, you know, I think sometimes we forget that and it becomes about me and the, the me generation and the social media and all that, you know. I don't want to get off on a tangent, but I, I think it's pretty simple in the end. And, and sometimes we lose that. But and then to be grateful. I think they were, you know, they were humble people. They were humble servants. They they didn't. It wasn't about them. They just did their job and helped others. And I think uh, to be grateful for what you have and, and to be humble. And I think that was probably you know some of the great lessons I learned from them. Well, knowing Bo Schimekler, I'm sure he liked all those because the last thing Bo wanted was a hotshot quarterback who knew it. Yeah. Uh, he did not like that very much. So, no. and by the way, your parents, given their background, and I've known you for a long time, 20 some years, I did not know this about your parents. <clears throat> and I can only imagine if you want to come home from high school or junior high school and complain to them about something. Well, <laughs> but yeah. whatever you just saw, they saw harder. So yeah. that's yeah. not going to work. No, they, they set a great example. And it, it, it was about doing your job, right. And, and, you know, not, not complaining and, and, you know, uh, you know, work hard and, and, and keep your mouth shut and, you know, good things will happen down the road. And you just, you know, you stay the course. And, and that was, I think for them, uh, you know, they were married almost 60 years. My mom passed a week before her 60th. Uh, they raised three kids and two of them are lawyers and I sell t-shirts. So, so they, <laughs> they were very proud. They had 12 grandkids when it was all said and done. And I think uh, I was so blessed to have them as parents and to, I think to grow up in the era I did and, and just to have the experiences I did, I, I was, I am very grateful, you know, from having my parents to opportunities, you know, after, you know, in life with Michigan and, and, and after that, and having kids, you know. Well, they also prepared you for Michigan, of course, not easy. Mm -hmm. You know, you've told me in the past that as a freshman, of course, no red shirts back then for a freshman. I mean, a, a literal red shirt. They're allowed to hit you. And practice yeah. and you guys did full line practice plenty of hitting 20 plays on tuesday 20 plays on wednesday and of course you're on the demo team and therefore you're going against all americans on the other side who are only too happy to tee off on an 18 year old freshman correct that must have been yeah. a, a quite a learning experience well my indoctrination to college football when i was on the demonstration team calvin o'neill was our our middle linebacker our captain and all american and and Calvin, of all the guys I ever looked across the line of scrimmage at, uh, was the scariest looking guy ever. He had a, a cage with all the bars on it. 
He had two little uh, beady eyes in there, and he had the meanest stare. And, you know, early on, you know, when if we were successful on the demo team, Calvin wasn't real happy. So uh, uh, he came through, and he made sure uh, if he got a shot, he took it. And uh, probably the first three quarters of the season, Calvin would plant me on the turf every time he got. And I kept getting back up. I didn't say anything. And then by the end, he was holding me up a little bit and wasn't throwing me down quite as hard. And uh, after that, we kind of became friends. I think I earned his respect. And um, the demonstration team, as you've heard probably from other guys, probably the greatest training ground or learning experience you could have at Michigan. Uh, because you're going against the best players and you, you know, are welcome to college football, right? It's a whole faster pace. They're bigger guys are faster. They're smarter. And, you know, if you can get through that, you know, you're gristled. By the time you got to Saturday, the game was, was pretty easy compared to Tuesdays and Wednesdays. I have quoted you on that in many, many speeches, by the way, about not playing favorites, getting ready to, to do the actual thing. Don't hold it short, of course. Try people out in the actual live ammo environment. You once told me that forget Indiana, forget Illinois. Hell, Saturday was a day off. You played half a game. <laughs> you weren't touched by anybody very much. Tuesday and Wednesday, all Americans are chasing you down and they're getting you. And your whole goal was simply to get to Wednesday night team dinner as the starting quarterback at the University of Michigan. Ben, you just might hold your job by Saturday. Yeah, yeah that's a fact. Um, and, and, you know, when we were doing our uh, full line, with the offense, we were going almost 90 plays, six hashes. I mean, you know, we it was so different back then. It was repetition, repetition, repetition. So, I mean, and live, really, and live, live. Yeah, and and you know, back then in our era, uh, there was not uh, necessarily holding up much. I mean, it was hitting full go on those days. And uh, and I know a lot of us are paying the price over the years. We wouldn't trade it for anything, but. But, you know, it was a very physical era. And, you know, and, and there's been some great adjustments in the practice schedule and how they train now because it was so physical. The turf was not very good. It was basically Astro or uh, Brillo pad on, on asphalt. And, um, <laughs> but the, the uh, innovations and everything that's, that's come over the years has been great for the sport. But back then it was, it was pretty physical and it was rough. And uh, like you said, if you got to, you got the dinner on Wednesday night. Thursday was usually a little lighter. We were still in pads, but unless we made Bo mad and he made us go full <laughs> live, which he did a few times, Thursday was a little easier and Friday was kind of a walkthrough and then Saturday we were ready to play. Had to be a good feeling, of course, by Saturday. So the, Saturday was not the scary part. That's the beauty part of yeah. Bo's schedule, obviously. So yeah. Herb Brooks was the 1980 Olympic coach who beat the Soviets 4-3. to three. His plan was to make them so scared of him they quit being scared of the Soviets, and it kind of worked. Yeah. <laughs> I think Bo took a similar approach. Our coach, yeah, yeah he had the similar ideas, and, and uh, he did a nice job at it. But uh, he was—I tell you—we uh, can talk about Bo later. But I mean, he was—he was a joy to play for. And you, I even—and I got it was a quarterback in the meetings with him all the time. He spent a lot of time. You look forward to going down there and being around him because he was a lot of fun. Now he was tough, but he was a lot of fun to be around. Uh, I did not play for him, obviously, did not come close. I could not have been a backup punter on your team. But uh, you spent two or three hours with him talking to him about the book that we're working on. I would always have to go for a run afterwards from too jacked up. And he sure as hell was not trying to jack up a writer at 45. Right. Uh, but that was the effect that he had. So I will never forget that energy, to say the least. So speaking of guys like that, Jim Hackett was a senior demonstration team center. 
uh, hiking you the ball as a freshman, of course. And there's a guy whose career, your career's in front of you, and you know you're going to get some snaps, and you're probably going to compete for the top job and so on. Jim already knew that that was not the case for him. And yet, he never took a play off, and you recall that. Yeah, it was. Uh, he was a senior uh, when I was a freshman, and you know he was our center on the demonstration team, and what a great leader and motivator. And you know he'd been down there getting beat around for four years, and he ne- like you said, he never took a play off. He led. Our goal every day was to give that first string defense a great look, the best look we could give them, right, and to compete. And when you have guys like that who've been through the war. And they're down there, you know, busting their butt. And they know they probably won't play a lot on Saturday, but they're, you know, giving it everything they have. They set great example for the young guys. And that was always the uh, the protocol at Michigan. The seniors would lead. Whether you were the All-American or the Heisman Trophy candidate or you were the demonstration guy or whatever you were, you're, you were the leaders of the team. You sat on the front of the plane. You got served first. You, you earn that respect, and, and that's what Jim was. And there was a lot of guys like that down there who, you know, and you think, wow, man, this is your fourth year, and you've been getting pounded on for four years, and you've not really played that much, and they still keep coming at it, and they, they love Michigan, and they, they just – and that's really, to me, the, the, the essence of that, the sport. And, and, and as you can see, obviously with Jim uh, – those guys, a lot of times, are the most successful guys after after college. You know, they do great things because they're they're such great leaders and they're so selfless and they're they're the kind of guys that companies want to be a, hire and be a part of and and who lead you know lead men. Well said, Jim Hackett. Of course, ended up being the CEO of Steelcase Furniture, then the athletic director at Michigan. He hired Jim Harbaugh, and then of course the CEO of Ford Motor Company. So I guess you're right. He, the man did okay. <laughs> <laughs> Not bad. Not bad. We're gonna call that okay. Uh, you do become the starting quarterback ahead of good quarterbacks, uh, including B.J. Dickey. Um, you're starting in against Indiana in 1979. The score is tied 21-21. And yes, Lee Corso, yes, that Lee Corso, uh, was in fact, it was a good Indiana team that got to a bowl game, uh, which back then was, you know, only about seven or eight bowl games back then. So that was rare, and they did it. But it's 21-21, six seconds left. And this is not a team that Michigan has ever lost to under Bo. Um, and there you are. And you're about midfield. And Bo broke that play down for me in about two or three pages in his book, Bo's Lasting Lessons. They did a play. You guys did a play action fake. And Bo said, even I'm not that conservative. We're going to pass the ball. <laughs> we, we are 50 yards away. Tell us about that play. Well, you know, it's funny. And I've said it before. Uh, we had no straight drop back passes in our, our playbook at that time. which At all. At all. And the fact that it's the last play of the game. Indiana's in a prevent defense. And I have to spin around and, and, and fake uh, off-tackle the Butch Wolfolk before I even get my eyes downfield. You know, you say that today, it, it's like, are you crazy? I mean, what were they thinking, you know? But that's, that's how it was. We had a great team that year. Arguably the most talented team I was on uh, in five years. We did not achieve like we should have. We underachieved for a lot of reasons, but um, we had some great players. We had great receivers, Ralph Clayton, Doug Marsh, uh, Anthony Carr. Anthony was a freshman, uh, Alan Mitchell. And so we, uh, the last play, Anthony comes running in as a freshman. And, he, and as we're breaking the huddle, he says, uh, throw me the ball, Wang. And I said, I'm going to, don't worry. He was out there a little skinny freshman, and uh, it was a 54-pass post, and I dropped back. and you know, spin around, fake the butch. 
Anthony got behind the linebackers in front of the safeties. I hit him in stride, and the rest is uh, is history. And uh, I don't think there's too many human beings on this earth who could have made that play. And that really, I think, opened the eyes of the world to Anthony's greatness and what what he could do and the impact he could have on college football. And uh, you know, he had three people, and a couple of them were all Big Ten uh, secondary guys had had great shots at Anthony and great angles and he eluded them all his leg almost went down and he got in the, and so in fact I was running down because I was trying to thought I'd have to call time out to try to kick a field goal but um but Anthony got in and I think uh that was the start of, of his legendary career that probably was of course he returned a kick I think in his first game against Northwestern for a touchdown but this was the first time seeing him do what Anthony did of course when I tell the story of that play it's amazing because it wasn't a bomb, which almost everyone would have done these days. He split the coverage, of course. You hit him right in stride. If that ball is two feet ahead or behind, he's not going to make it because as it was, he just barely slipped past two guys, as you said, two good defenders, almost fell down. Were you in that pile? And go ahead and Google this play, people. Were you in that pile afterwards? About four guys high, I think. No. Part of that? I, no. I was, <laughs> I, I, I was watching it. I saw what was going on. I said, no, nah, I'm not getting in this pile. Uh, <laughs> but uh, we were all jumping up and down, celebrating. And The best thing was the next day, uh, Michigan replay, where they had a camera on Bo on the sidelines. And we had never seen him so animated and so excited, jumping up and down. His vertical must have been about three inches, but he, we were all teasing him. <laughs> but, but he was jumping up and down. And, you know, it was, it was really an unbelievable experience that obviously – you never forget. And just to be a part of that was, uh, was really special. That's hilarious. I was in the Maynard Street McDonald's. I was a ninth grader uh, at that time. Um, that's the old two-story McDonald's downtown on campus. And the lines were four or five deep. The place was packed and everything stopped. And it was Bob Buford on the radio. And all I could hear was the fries and the burgers sizzling. And then, of course, Bob Buford goes insane. The place goes insane. And I'll never forget that. I, of course, did not get the tickets because my parents had the tickets. There's no way in hell they're giving them to some 14-year-old snot-nosed kid. So there's well, that. But anyway. The way you've called that play may have been better than the play. I mean, he was <laughs> – I mean, you know, everyone's probably heard that over the last years. But it, it's an unbelievable call. And um, can you imagine him today if, if with all the technology and the oh, uh, man. communications out there? I mean, he, he was a legend anyway. But, you know, what he he was so ahead of his time. It was unbelievable. Oh, he was. And people forget this about Bob Buford. He was the play-by-play man, and he was prepared. He was color man. He's also the studio technician as well as the, the fat guy. There are four guys who do his jobs now, by the way. So yeah. that's what Bob Buford did. And I know he loved you, of course. So he you're the starter great. now. You get to the Gator Bowl. Uh, you guys are winning. And Bo has never won a bowl game to this point. He's 0-5 in Rose Bowls. Always close. Uh, but never a winner. And this seems like, okay, Michigan's going to win their bowl game. You're ahead. And a certain man named Lawrence Taylor pays a visit. Yeah. You know, it, it, to set the stage in that game too, we were, we had gone to three Rose Bowls in a row and lost everybody. And we thought we, we should have beat Ohio state that year. We lost 18, 15 on a block punt. And uh, we were not real happy. And uh, we convinced Bo to throw a bomb on the first play. So we threw a bomb to Anthony on the first play. He didn't score, but he got a long play. So we were going to – we opened it up a little bit, and we were having a great game uh, in the second uh, – kind of middle of the second quarter. We're coming out of our own end zone, and uh, we called a bootleg, 
and it was like third and long and a bootleg to the field. And they were blitzing from the weak side corner. And I got a little nervous because I had to turn around, turn my back, and get out to the wide side of the field. Well, I got nervous, and I, kind of, I didn't hang on the fake enough. And I, I didn't give Kurt Becker, our guard, time to pull and, and kick out uh, LT. And so I'm up, I get out there, and it's me and him, and I decide I'm going to try to outrun him to the corner, which was a mistake. But, and then I said, okay, I'm going to cut up. And I cut up, and he, he gets me and kind of twists my knee pretty good. And uh, I was out. Uh, I went out, and I remember him standing over me yelling and screaming. And I'm, I'm like, hey, look at the scoreboard, man. We're killing you. I'll be back. I'll see you in the second half. And then uh, I went to the locker room, and uh, that was not the case. I, Dr. O'Connor was in there, and I said, Doc, can I get a shot or something? Because when you have a really bad injury, you kind of go numb. So it wasn't that painful at the time. He goes, John, let me show you something. He held my my uh, shin down and pulled my knee up. And there was like a six-inch gap because I had torn the posterior cruciate off the off the bone. So there was no nothing holding it there. And uh, he says, you're not going to be playing here for a while. So, just, so that, was a, that was a tough blow because, uh, you know, I, I was starting to play. It was really – probably one of my best games. I mean, we were over 200 yards passing and already. We, yeah. We were beating them, shutting them out. And, uh, so it was, it was really frustrating, but, uh, things worked out in the end. It, they did, but they got worse in the middle. Of course, uh, everyone thought, including the doctors, your career was probably over and you would not take no for an answer. And you kept going when all the guys were out drinking and partying and so on on a Friday night, you'd be in the weight room. Bo loved you for that. He thought you were crazy, and he told me this. He said, this guy is chasing a dream uh, that is never going to happen, and he felt sorry for you, but he was impressed by your doggedness. Uh, but he really did not think he'd ever be back in a Michigan uniform. Uh, what was your mindset, and how'd you, how'd you prove the old man wrong? You know, I, I knew, you know, Bo was, he was like, hey, don't, you know, tough injury, especially at that time, you know, technology wasn't what it was today. And it was really a two-year injury at the time, or at least 18 months. And uh, he said, look, you, you know, you can be a GA, you can still with the team, you know, whatever, do, you know, whatever you need to do to rehabilitate. But, you know, not, you know, not really counting on you to come back. You know, I hope you do. But I could just tell in his voice, you know, he didn't really think I was coming back. And, and I said, look, man, this is it for me. I, I had so much to come back for. I had my, you know, uh, some of my fifth year guys, Mel Owens and uh, George Lilja, John Powers, Gerald Diggs, they, they were all coming back. And, you know, we, I knew we had a good team coming back. And, and Anthony, I was just really starting to get to play, right? And I'd sit there for three years watching Rick. And I said, you know, I, I really, <laughs> I, I want to play, man. So Dr. O'Connor did a great, great job uh, with the surgery. I had Russ Miller was in charge of my rehabilitation. And he did a great job. Uh, I was able to work down there for John Falk for the summer. And so I was at the weight room working and, and rehabilitating. And uh, I just, it, thank God that it, it, it healed. Like sometimes they do, sometimes they don't. And, you know, Bo uh, made sure that they brought me along slowly. And then um, when I got my chance, you know, uh, I was able to get in there. And I wasn't real mobile. I was taped from my ankle to my hip. But I was, you know, good enough to move around a little bit and make some people miss and get rid of the ball and, you know, uh, we had that magical season in 1980. You did. Started out with a 17-10 victory over lowly Northwestern. Lose to Notre Dame at Notre Dame, but that's when you get in for the first time. And as Bo said, those guys knew they had a block for you because one hit 
and that thing's probably out. So, and they, but they loved you, as Bo pointed out in, in the book. Um, then, of course, you lose to South Carolina, George Rogers, future Heisman Trophy winner. Um, but then you go on this 10-game tear, which people were not expecting after one and two. Um, you're taking off on this thing, and of course, you're uh, Andy Canavino, your defensive captain, takes on more responsibility. And the team starts rolling, and then you start picking things off, and then it, it's the, the season you wanted to have, it started happening. That must have been a magical feeling for you. It was, John, and you know what? I, I don't know if I told you this before. After Notre Dame, we're getting on the bus, and, and you, for Bob comes up to me, and sits down, and goes, you know, as bad as you feel right now, he says, in Pasadena on January 1st, you're going to forget about this, and you're going to be the happiest guy in the world. He goes, you guys are going to Pasadena. And I looked at him, I said, well, yeah, I hope so, you, if we're going to try, but, you know, but he called it, and you know, that's the kind of guy he was, so positive, but he believed. He goes, no, I, you know, he was so emphatic about it. And I'll never forget that. And, you know, we did. We got on a roll, and, um, you know, defense was unbelievable. I think it was 26 quarters at the end without a touchdown. Uh, offensively, we could run the ball with, with our offensive line. We had a great offensive line. You know, Moransky, Paris, Lilja, Powers, Kurt Becker, uh, and then NFLers, uh, all of them. All NFL. We had Dunaway and Betts tight end, Alan Mitchell and Anthony, uh, Larry Ricks and Butch and Stanley. I mean, we had a great offense, and we could run the ball, and then we could throw the ball. So we, it was tough. We were tough to defend. And, and, you know, a lot of people by the end of the year, you know, obviously if they would have had a playoff, we'd have been one of the teams in there. And I don't, I don't think anybody wanted to play us at the end of the year because we, we were, we had all the momentum. We were. And we were so confident. I mean, it was, uh, it, you know, you play sports for a long time, and you know when you have a magical season and that kind of a team. And that was that year where it came together. Well, it's even magical to watch as a kid, by the way, as a high school kid. So that was fun. Bo has said and told me, and most coaches would never do this, and certainly Bo is not a braggart, we know that, that that team, your team, was the best team ever coached the last six games of the season. Yeah. He said we had it all, and we're missing – and and all cylinders – Whatever we were missing the year before, we had it in spades this time around. Yeah. And just a, a, a determined bunch that was not going to take anything for granted. Right. And there you are in the Rose Bowl playing a good Don James coached uh, Washington team, team that had beaten Michigan two years earlier with Warren Moon at quarterback. And, man, it's all Michigan that day. Describe the Rose Bowl. It's Bo's seventh try, I think, maybe eighth try at a bowl game. And it's not even a question this time. Well, the good thing, the interesting that time, our indoor facility was done. We were able to practice in that for the first time for the bowl game. And instead of going out there for two weeks, which is way too long, especially for 18 to 22-year-old kids to be in Southern California, we were out for a week. And a lot of us had been to two or three Rose Bowls and had lost. And so we were taking all the heat, right, from the national, you know, riders and everybody. Bo can't win a bowl game. And we wanted so much for him. Uh, for his legacy, but we wanted it for ourselves and, and you know, because we'd been through it with him. And for all the guys who played with us out there and, and had lost, and, you know, I think we had a better team a few times out there and we, we didn't get it done. So we had a lot uh, that we were playing for, not only ourselves, but uh, we, we really wanted this one in, in so many ways and we just were not going to be denied. And, that, and just going out there and that stadium may be the prettiest stadium in the world, you know, especially in the fourth quarter when the sun's going down, you know, and you're in that valley and, and just to be there on the winning end of it that time uh, and to see that. I remember after the game, Mel, 
and I were in the end zone. We were just looking up and just crying. It was just, I mean, five years of ups and downs and frustration to finally win it uh, for Michigan and for Bo and our teammates. Uh, you couldn't have written a better script. Uh, about as good as it gets. And also because it was 23 to 6, you could actually enjoy it there at the end. Oftentimes at the end of a bowl game, there's no time to enjoy it. It's the game's on the line. This time you knew in advance this thing was won. And that had to feel good. And getting Bo on the shoulders and all that. Little known fact, everyone talks about Bo's bowl record. Fair enough, of course. Uh, but he finished 5-5. Five and five. His last 10 seasons, they went to a bowl game every year. And 5-5, five and five, that's about as well as you're going to do. Chances are in bowls. So you're playing against top, ten, uh, top teams. You guys started that. You got the monkey off his back. That had to feel good, too. It did, you know, and, and you know, you're always kind of remembered for, you know, what you do against Ohio State, Michigan State, and in the bowl games. And, you know, that fact that we were able to to win his first bowl game meant a lot. And that was, you know, something you, you treasure, right? It's your old guys now, you know. It just, it's nice that people remember and, it, and it's part of, part of your legacy. Well, speaking of your legacy, your two sons, as well as Haley, of course, played for Michigan, they played football, of course, Jack and Jared. Jared was a scholarship player for a while, did not have a scholarship his fifth year, debated going to Indiana of all schools. How about that for some synergy? Um, comes back to Michigan as a walk-on, and he knew going in that your your father, his grandfather, was in and out of the hospital at that point, I believe. And uh, he gets in the game against Maryland. It's 27-14 with 11:28 left. They're on about the five-yard line, I believe. And the play is called U-47. You are in the stands, correct? Mm-hmm. Yep. And, and you know the play? Yeah. All right. You know the play. What happens next? Well, I, I saw the formation, and, and I knew that he had a shot of, uh, of uh, you know, getting the, getting the ball thrown to him, right? And, um, and so I, when I saw Shea rolling, and I think they looked at the tight end first. That's right. And then, and then, and then Jared uh, got into the, to the flat there. And uh, he threw the ball low and away. And Jared Dover made a hell of a catch and got a touchdown. And it was it was surreal, right, to see uh, to see him score like that. And he had an up and down career. You know, came in as a linebacker and got hurt right when he was starting to make a move and got hurt. And then they switched him to fullback. He probably should have played fullback to start. And and then he, you know he, he had offers to go other places because uh, he was a scholarship guy for four years and he had offers. And then. You know, uh, Jimmy said, I want, I want you back, but I can't give you scholarship to your second half of your fifth year. And he debated going some other places. And in the end, you know, he's Michigan, right? Our family's Michigan, and that's what we do. And, you know, you, you start something, you can finish it. And, and, and the fact that he stayed and was able to achieve that success and, uh, you know, he was a, a key member on special teams his last couple of years. And uh, so it worked out well for Jared. And, and Jack got in. Maybe not as much as he would have liked, but the fact that he got his degree and was a part of the team and, and integral and played a little special teams and stuff, um, you know, it worked out. And, and those guys, you know, they weren't going anywhere else. They loved Michigan. And, you know, I guess I probably spoiled them growing up, you know, bringing them all the tailgates and, you know, being there. And it's, you know, how do you not, if you have that opportunity, how do you not take it when you come to Michigan? And I think five of our six kids end up going to Michigan and graduating which is probably one of my most proud accomplishments that Lorraine and I were able to get them all to Michigan and get degrees. And Eric, who didn't go to Michigan, went to UC. He's an actor and has done really well uh, on Broadway. And there's, you know, we got a lot of, a lot of talented young kids that have done well. And I, I think obviously Michigan's a huge part of that success. And 
and our family and, and you know what we do. Well, I got to know Jared quite well during that season because I was doing the book called Overtime. Uh, and of course, Rich Hewlett's son, also on the team. There are 10 kids whose fathers had played for Bo on that team, which is pretty incredible in itself. About 10% of the team at that point. Uh, pretty incredible. Uh, but on that play, uh, after the game, I asked you how many touchdown passes you had. I saw you in the parking lot at your famous tailgate. And you didn't even know. Uh, 25 or 26. You might still not know. I don't know. The answer is 26, by the way. I checked that one out on a few different sources. Uh, Jared made the catch. I knew what it meant to him. He points up to the sky to let his grandfather know that if I do anything big, uh, be watching grandpa and I'll let you know. And he was watching, of course, from the hospital bed. Um, and I went out to see you. It's raining out there. It's one of my favorite moments in 30 years of doing this line of work. So I've gotten, gotten to know you, watched you as a kid growing up, of course. But here you were as a father. And it's raining out. And for the most part, you and I were talking so long. The tailgate had dispersed along the entire parking lot. I didn't even notice. You didn't notice either. And I asked you 25, 26 touchdown passes. But thanks to your gimpy knee, you not once had a, you not once got to the end zone yourself by your own feet. And Jared just did something that you had not done, which is hold the ball in the end zone. And I asked you, uh, when I asked John how Jared's one touchdown catch compared to John's 26 touchdown passes, John Wangler grinned, then pushed his lower lip up to control his emotions while shaking his head, his eyes suddenly glassy. Not even close, brother, not even close. You can take my touchdowns and swap them for that one, and I'd be happy. I cannot describe how it feels, but any parent knows. Oh, by the way, because Jared reminds me of that every now and then, I got inside the one like three or four times. I just couldn't, you know. <laughs> and both tried to give me a touchdown in the Rose Bowl, but I'll tell you, I'll never do the end of it. But, you know, you, you, your kids, your kids accomplishments mean so much more. And just, you know, uh, it, it's so, you're so proud of what they do. And, and, and that, a lot of it, too, is to see what they had to go through to get to that point. You know, like, like what I went through to get to, you know, come back and play. A lot of people don't know the whole story, and but a lot of people don't know Jared's story that he did to be able to, to get to that point. A lot of people don't know Jack's story, and Hallie transferred from Oakland to play at Michigan. It was always her dream, and she walked on, and finally she got a scholarship her last year playing basketball from Coach Kim. And, and you know, all the backstories, right? People see sometimes the final version, but they don't know all that went into you know, getting to that point and the sacrifices. And, you know, you do anything for your kid, as you well know, right? You, you told me last night your son was playing magic tricks, right? How proud is that? How, how does it, I mean, it's, it's what we do means nothing. When you see your kids being successful and doing things, that's what life's about. Well, you've done it six times, John. I told you last night on the phone. I think they give medals for that <laughs> because I've got one kid and that's a full-time job. It seems like six kids, it boggles my mind. You did a great job. I've got to know most of them, wonderful kids. I always boil it down to three things that people tell me. In your case, despite all my notes here, um, I'm boiling it down to what your parents taught you from the outset. It's simple, but it's not easy. Work ethic, treat people the way you'd want to be treated, and be grateful. Pretty simple. But one thing you just added, though, I love, and it's what I'm trying to teach my kid now. It's not about achievement. It's about not giving up. It's about handling failure. And your great line here, it's with your kids especially, it's all the things you know they had to go through to get there. That is what makes you the most proud. That's brilliant. Right. Yeah, it's, uh, I think the greatest blessing you can have are, are children and to see them grow and develop. And you got to let them fail, right? And I think sometimes now everybody doesn't want their kids to fail, and they, but you got to fall down. And, and, and it's not 
falling down. It's, it's how you get back up, you know, because we're all going to fall, right? And we're all imperfect. We're all going to screw up. We're all going to do stuff. And, you know, you, you say you're sorry and you, you fight back and, and, and come back, you know, and that's, that's all you can do. There you go. Well, the other day, my kid told me, dead serious, looked me right in the eye. I said, Dad, I'm going to be a Red Wing. And I didn't say it, but I'm thinking, well, a few things, kid. One, check your genes. <laughs> <laughs> Two, that's not how it works. And three, stay in school in your case. <laughs> yeah. You know what? You let them have, you, you support their dreams, whatever it is. A- right? Absolutely. You, you don't you, tell them no. no don't tell them no. no. Whatever you need, whatever you do, just do it 100% and be the best you can be. And, and, and you know, things are going to work out for you. There you go. Last question. Who was your favorite teacher? Well, my favorite teachers, obviously, your mom and dad, right? I mean, that's, well, in your case, especially both teachers. Yeah, that goes without saying, but. I had a teacher, I went to Shrine grade school for 12 years, and we were taught by nuns, the Sisters of Charity from Cincinnati. And I knew the Cincinnati Reds team because that's when they were winning all the championships with Johnny Bench and those Tom Seaver and all those guys, Pete Rose. So uh, in September, the month of September, we did not have school because we were watching the Cincinnati Reds. They were huge sports <laughs> fans. And I used to you know, clap the erasers and bring them whenever I could to get out of class so I could go watch the game with but. Sister Ann Dominic, a God rest her soul, was my favorite teacher. She, uh, I had her in sixth grade, and then I had her again in eighth grade. And um, but they were they were so supportive uh, of the. They lo- I think they liked the guys better than the girls there. So we got away with murder, and they were so supportive <laughs> of us uh, coming to our games and all that stuff. But she was a wonderful teacher who I, I learned so much from. Well, I gotta love that. And think about the ripples, her effect on you. All your teammates, your six kids, their kids, et cetera, it, uh, it cascades. So John Wangler, a legend, but also just a great guy. And what you said to your son, we talked about this last night with Jared and his business career doing quite well also. Above all else, keep your integrity. Um, success comes and goes. Yeah. It's a roller coaster, but your integrity does not. So that yeah. I always admire. One of my all-time favorites, and they always tell you in our business, by the way, don't meet your heroes. It's a bad idea, <laughs> uh, but I've done that a few times. You're one of them, and uh, it's worked out just fine. So, John, thanks again for all your time. Well, John, thank you. You do a great job in everything you do, and I, I enjoy listening to you and reading and all the stuff you do. And you've been so supportive over the years, and uh, you know, so great for Michigan. And uh, it just—it's uh, a great family, and it's a great fraternity to be a part of. And it's so special. We're all a little biased, I think, because we love Michigan so much and everything, but. Uh, I appreciate everything you do and keep up the great work. And, you know, I pretty soon we may be seeing your, your son on uh, with Johnny Carson or uh, what's he, <laughs> he may be, who oh. knows? Like Shelmore, or he could who be knows? Stanley, could be in the Stanley Cup finals, you know? So long as he's somewhere. How's that? <laughs> That's right. That's right. Thanks so much. So, John, thank you. You've been listening to Let Them Lead, a podcast about the risks and rewards of leading today. I'm John U. Bacon, the author of Let them lead. Unexpected lessons in leadership from America's worst high school hockey team. Tell your friends, subscribe, leave a review. And again, big thanks to John Wangler. We'll see you next time. You've been listening to Let Them Lead, a podcast about the risks and rewards of leading today with your host, John U. Bacon, author of Let Them Lead, Unexpected Lessons in Leadership from America's Worst High School Hockey Team. We hope you enjoyed this episode, got a few laughs, and picked up some insights you can use tomorrow and think about for years. Please feel free to leave your comments about any and all of the podcast episodes, and by all means, spread the word. 
please join us again for another fun, fast, and fulfilling serving of Let Them Lead.